0: Welcome to Cat's Cradle, the show within a show where we talk about games and game design, and we make fun of Kirsten a lot. This week, we're not going to be playing Sword of Symphonies because we're down a Kathleen. So instead, we're going to be talking to you about something that's been on my mind lately and uh, something that I think is one of my favorite parts of any role-playing game book, and that's Encounters. I don't know about all of you, but... When I was big into third ed and 3.5, I collected monster manuals. I still have them. They're my favorite D&D books. They're wonderful. With me, I've just realized, they're Bill. Hi. (laughs) Hi, Bill. Bill, what's your favorite monster?
1: I, um, uh, the girl reading this.
0: Beautiful. Beautiful. She is a small-sized creature with at least four caster levels. It's Kirsten. Hi. It's me. Kirsten, what's your favorite
2: monster? Ooh, 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 ooh. Um, The Babadook. The Babadook is creepy. Ooh, good choice. That's a good choice, yeah, for sure.
0: And he's a monster, and he's got all the energy. It's Nick. Hi, everybody. Very chill, Nick, your favorite monster, if you please.
3: I mean you gotta go with the king, good old Godzilla.
2: Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: They call him the Elvis of Monsters. That is exactly what they call him. Just look it up on Google. It's you know millions of hits right there.
0: Beautiful. So, like I mentioned in the intro, my favorite thing about picking up a role-playing game is flipping to the back and looking at the monsters, looking at the encounters in it. And I'm always deeply disappointed when I buy a new game and there's no bestiary. (laughs) Or even Ryutama, a game that I adore, that I very vocally love, Ryutama, doesn't have any pictures in its bestiary. So you just have to guess at what a walking egg looks like.
3: Well, you can find pictures of those at some point. They're much more terrifying if you just think about them for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: for sure. The reason we want to talk about this is partially because relatively recently, Heroic Core changed its encounter system. Its whole encounter system. And you're witnessing some kind of fringe applications of that with the wind attack and this weird pollen that's happening in this arc. And I recently played with some friends, and we did a non-combat encounter with kind of diplomacy with a noble demon in order to get an important object from them. And I just love talking about encounters. (laughs) When Heroic Cord gets a proper manual release, believe me when I say there will be a
1: bestiary.
0: I love them. I must have them.
1: Actually, that's interesting because, Kat, you're already, like, in the, the examples you just gave, apart from a theory, like, we've been fighting the wind and pollen, and you said an encounter that you recently played was sort of just talking to people. Like, you know, we've talked about this in the combat cat's cradle, like, having a system that is not strictly for taking on a monster or, uh, you know, a, a villain that is a pile of stats, but is usable for for diplomacy, for... Um, you know, outlasting and 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 handling situations in a in a way that isn't combat is really interesting. And I think the flexibility of it is the sign of a uh, a good um, malleable system that can be used outside of strictly bestiary.
0: And that's I mean, I'm working on an SRD uh, because I just I like them. <laughs> I love them a lot. Uh, SRD, by the way, is a system resource document. So I'm, wor- I'm working on the blank game of Heroic Chord with the lore stripped out. Yeah. One thing I'm very excited about is whenever other people design encounters, she's not here, but Kathleen has done some freaking amazing counter- encounters. One of them is kind of this two-front combat. It takes place in the far north, and you're with a group of crusaders and one extremely angry dragon against the swarm. And it's like, can you convince this dragon that a tactical retreat is needed before you all get devoured? It's interesting and it's nuanced and it's part diplomatic encounter and part combat encounter. Kathleen's a freaking whiz with this system. I love it.
1: Well, that's interesting thinking of how you get to success and failure cases in those as well, right? Because it's not as... Cut and dry as, um, you know, a more combat-style encounter that, like, you have to determine what the difficulty is for a conversation or outrunning, I don't know, a melting glacier or something like that. Mm. Like, how do you think about when you're coming up with encounters what the—not only the difficulty mechanically and and numbers-wise is, crunchy-wise, but narratively, like, how you would resolve positively or negatively an encounter in this system that is not strictly combat—
0: Let's walk through a stat block in Heroic Chord because I think that's going to do a lot to address this. The first thing that you see in a stat block for an encounter in Heroic Chord is how many actions it gets per round. And this is basically kind of your difficulty because I've found when playtesting with y'all that if it gets as many actions per round as the players, the players are in trouble. So that is a difficult encounter if it gets as many actions as the players do. I usually go for one less unless I'm feeling
3: mean. <laughs> or it's a big climactic thing, but we can also go with the mean.
0: Yeah, it's no, it's for a big climactic story appropriate reasons and not because I'm feeling aggressive. Don't worry about it. <laughs> the next thing is the three goals. There are three possible goals in a combat and heroic chord. You can destroy, outlast, or redirect. And whenever I write an encounter for this game, I make sure to write what each of them would mean. So for example, the Pollen Fog encounter. Destroy meant to clear the air, to just remove the pollen from the air. Redirect meant to prevent the Pollen Fog from reaching the village of Pavilion. And Outlast meant to protect the people in the fog from the Pollen Fog's effects. So whenever you're writing an encounter for Heroic chord, one thing I want people to do when writing for the system is to think about what those three words mean in context of this encounter and which ones you want to be easier and which ones you want to be harder. Because that really does help shape
3: it. I really like that the, the system as it's set up links up very nicely with the stats where it's not just like hit points or anything like that. It's, you know, basically... You have aggression, you have retreat, and then you have kind of like smart slash endure.
0: Oh well, I'm I am glad to hear that. I think my design philosophy with heroic court is very much about capturing goals and approaches rather than concrete, immutable characteristics of something.
2: Yeah. Again, we are with the stats. You can approach. You don't necessarily have to be like, oh, I don't have like strength so I can't fight. It's satisfying when you're rewarded for taking an approach that might not necessarily be considered like the head-on approach. It feels nice. It's like finding a secret path. It's like, oh. Huh. Yeah, I, I love when games reward that.
1: I mean, Kat, when designing encounters, how do you think about rewarding overwhelmingly creative or out-of-the-box uh, uh, approaches? Like apart from, you know, having three at least separate ways to resolve an encounter do you ever like you know consider um and maybe it's planned for maybe it's like more spur of the moment like somebody does something absolutely wild and off the wall and you want to reward them with either uh, making through the encounter or giving them some bonus giving the team something how do you plan for that or on purpose not plan for it in design
0: i don't usually plan specifically for that now that you mention it usually like when somebody does something completely wild in play Mm -hmm. my way of rewarding them is just absolutely just rolling with it yes enthusiastically (laughs) responding to it and sometimes I'll like bump down a difficulty of a goal if somebody has done something that like will permanently make it easier for the party to do it yeah But for the most part, because there's numbers attached to things like casting spells or making skill rolls, I can just feed those numbers into the advantage pool or the goals and reward pretty much any kind of behavior with progress.
2: I mean, sometimes people are just going to like jump on a giant bird and try to ride a giant bird and you got to find it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And you have to reward them for it because that's how you improv. (laughs) and you don't want to you want to punish them for it (laughs) and they're in the same room as you so you have the chance you can just reach over (laughs) but you don't do it because you're on mic (laughs) but listener you want to
1: (laughs) so Kat, my other question regarding that would be and i you know that's for you for everybody on the call when designing the encounter do you leave little hooks that you hope people will play with that are you know Maybe invisible, maybe just innocuous, maybe you don't have an actual plan for it, but just like, here's something that's on fire, here's a door that's ajar, here's some red barrels. Like, do you have those in your mind to describe in a scene with the hopes that somebody will take the bait?
0: Oh, I do it sometimes. Yeah. Actually, that's the next thing in the list of things an encounter has. So you have the number of actions per round, you have the difficulty to advance the tracks, and then you have special rules, In the Pollen Fog, we had a special rule that was anyone can gain scatter to add a die to a skill roll. The party was too clever to fall for my trap because that would have gone terribly for them if they had taken the bait. But I did put
1: it there. Party was also pretty scattered going into this
0: fight. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, this is true. This is absolutely (laughs) true. So maybe it wasn't the time for that. (laughs) I bet Tissa would have. If Tissa wasn't already pretty scattered, Tissa would have taken that bait.
1: But staying out of that, sort of what was your either anticipated or hoped for or uh, mischievous, horrible monster plan in adding that as a special role for specifically this encounter? Two reasons.
0: One of them was a flavor reason. I wanted people to be interacting with the pollen fog on a psychological level. By, like, pushing themselves outside themselves and entering this disassociative state, they'd actually be able to have concrete effects on the world. That was my way of signaling that this pollen is kind of a little bit more than just a psychoactive drug. Oh. And second, a vicious little trap, because if you'll recall correctly, it was also capable of doing damage equal to the amount of scatter you'd taken.
1: Right, right. (gasps) Right.
2: Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Okay. So those are the reasons I made that rule. (laughs) Which you didn't fall for because you are rightfully suspicious of me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What do you do if an encounter you find is becoming a bit too challenging for a party? Is there a way that you handle that in the time or is it usually you can kind of gauge by having interacted with the players and knowing their skill set that what a good weighted encounter would look like? There are two things. First of all, the rule about how many turns it gets per round
0: is pretty ironclad. If I give an encounter three turns per round, Coptis and Penelope are going to struggle. If I give it two actions per round, Coptis and Penelope are going to have a fight. So, number one is number of actions per round. Action economy is absolutely king in games like this, kind of in general. The next thing I do is, honestly, I just play the monster bad. Okay. Because the next thing on the list that every monster has is a list of moves. And a move has the amount of successes it takes to avoid the move and then a consequence. And usually a description. I like to add flowery descriptions to them. But, like, the Pollen Fog, again, had Fantasia, and then it had Darkening Fantasy. And Fantasia caused everyone to scatter one, and Darkening Fantasy was the move that had everyone take damage equal to their scatter. Oh, okay. So if I were playing that very, very aggressively, I would just be constantly trying to scatter you until you didn't have six in the pool, and then I would use Darkening Fantasy and Party Wipe. But if you were struggling and honestly with the pollen fog, you guys kind of were because you were so high on scatter already that I did not play that encounter aggressively. I deliberately made choices that would not be as aggressive, that would scale it back a little bit so that you guys would win. Of course, I wanted you to win.
1: So I'm actually curious, though, for Kirsten and Nick having been through plenty of encounters, obviously with Kat and with the system, do you ever feel that? Do you feel like, not kid gloves, but like, you know, tapping on the brakes a little bit uh, is coming from the encounter, or is it invisible enough uh, in the system that you don't, you know, see behind the curtain?
3: I think the way that the system is set up, it's invisible enough to me. Like, it's one of those things where when Kat says, hey, I, I eased up a little bit, you can say, oh, okay, that makes sense, but... Because we are not given, like, I guess, printouts of what the encounter can do, we're not, you know, we're just, we're not being able to go, oh, well, this would be, like, the super amazing, if you only did this move, we would totally be toast, and so we can't really see that. But I don't know, Kirsten, what do you think?
2: Yeah, um, when Kat was describing the move combo that could have been used if it had been more aggressive, I was like, oh, okay, I can see how, But I didn't feel that when we were in the combat. For the last several combats, especially, I come out of it feeling slightly fatigued in a good way. In the fact of like, it felt challenging. I didn't feel that it was like scaled back, but I, and, and I did feel like a little bit of worry and like, oh, oh goodness, like, but it wasn't like, oh, we just need to throw our hands up because it's too difficult. I always come out of the counters feeling like it was... A challenge and sometimes like trying to navigate when to use certain things or when to take from the pool or commit to the pool. Um, There's stakes there that are built in. Long story short, I can't tell if the monster's playing a little bit softer.
0: You know who probably can tell is Kathleen. (laughs) (laughs) Kathleen, you may have noticed, pays very close attention to what the monsters are capable of. So I, I bet if you asked
3: Kathleen that question, she'd say she can tell. Yeah, Kathleen is taken to this system very well, especially the encounter system. She's a big fan. She's a genius.
2: Well, I wasn't. The thing about the the oily smoke, because like there was there was a thing where the 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 horror had produced a like the smoke, and then Kathleen's like, hmm, and I know they have this pa- power. And that seems like an oily smoke, so I really think we should save some because we might be on fire next round. We were like, "Oh, okay," and sure enough. (laughs) Sure enough.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Kathleen is both very, very good at heroic court, frankly, and also can see through me like completely. (laughs) (laughs) Kathleen absolutely has my number. And it's a a beautiful thing, and I'm absolutely not complaining about it because I think, like, when all you play is D&D, it's really easy to feel like it's the dungeon master's goal is to to defeat the party and to be inscrutable and to be mysterious. But the more I've played other games, the more fun I have just messing with the party, frankly. Like, I'm not here to defeat Cobtis and Penelope. Far from it. I would hate it if they lost. But I do want to mess with them.
1: Right. Messing with them and still allowing them to do cool stuff, too. Like going back to what Christian was saying, like, I agree that maybe it's, uh, you know, the, the nature of how this party operates or it's the system built into it as well. But I do feel like every encounter that I've been able to be a part of has had Like highs and lows where like there is a point where we have a healthy amount uh, in the pool that like we are comfortable and ready to like start firing stuff off. And then a moment later we are like scraping the bottom of the barrel and it's very dramatic. It allows for dynamic play on our side as players, but then it also gives you cat from the other side of the encounter, a clear mechanical trigger to see, like, ooh, this is the state that the party's in. They have this amount in the pool. They have this much scattered individually. And you can react to that um, apparently very invisibly, (laughs) which is great, um, to scale up or down on essentially every turn. Yeah.
0: It's a lot of fun to be like, okay, the party has a full pool. Let's pull out of the stops. Let's get aggressive. Mm Mm-hmm. When the party doesn't have as much in the pool, usually I'll use one super aggro move to really just put the screws to them. And then the other moves will be like limiting moves, like moves that prevent you from using a certain facet or prevent you from taking certain actions, which I like to get in the way because they force people to think differently. So I like to slip those in when the party's low on advantage because then the party has to take these restrictions and has to work around restrictions. And when the party is high on advantage, that's when I just start punching and hitting them with my fists and my knuckles.
1: <laughs> well, and it's funny that you you said at the outset of this part of the conversation that you're so stringent with the action economy, and that's the one thing that you don't touch because I find when I'm running encounters, more so in like D&D rule sets like that, that that is the first thing I will mess with Uh, So, like, I love having, like, an enemy that gets harder every round and gains another action per round. Or flip side, you know, if people are struggling, like, they are able to, with some piercing shot, slow down an enemy, and suddenly it has a different uh, amount of turns between when it attacks. Like, that's the lever that I pull most often, so it's so funny that it's the one that you you kind of said it's never touched at all.
0: But it's for the same reason, and that's because action economy is such an important part of the difficulty of an encounter that, for me, it's the lodestone around which an encounter is built. Like, it's the North Star.
1: Yeah, And I love mucking stuff up. Yeah.
0: Well, for you, it's like, okay, it's the lever you pull for dynamic difficulty. Whereas for me, it's the anchor I set for my difficulty goal. And then I steer from there. But either way, yeah, it's because we understand how action economy impacts things. By the way, game
3: designers, (laughs) action economy is no joke. It is probably the most important thing in almost any kind of game like this. Just you can do more. Do more is good. If you are having trouble balancing
0: your combat system, think about action economy. Action economy will force every other mechanic in your system to the sidelines if you're not careful with it.
1: What I think a, a good symptom to look for is, uh, you know, of, a, of an unhealthy, call it action economy, is that successes just automatically turn into like doubling down the successes and vice versa for failures where you can't get out of a failure cycle versus, you know, a healthy, well-balanced one. You'll be able to move between the edge of death and the edge of like easy success, bounce between those because the economy is balanced.
3: Right.
0: There are only two abilities in Heroic Core that give the players extra actions. No, wait, there's three because there's also the uh, combat specialty outnumbered. So one of them is if you're outnumbered, you get extra actions, but that's kind of assuming a position in which you're at a disadvantage in action economy. There's supporter, which means you can spend scatter to get an additional action as long as you use both to increase the advantage pool. So you can't use that to just completely go ham on a goal. And there's also gallantry, which is if there's a helpless person nearby, you gain an extra action in combat to protect them. So anytime that I've made something that increases action economy in the player's favor, I try to put limits on it because otherwise it's an obvious easy choice for gaming the system. Gaming the system is good and fun, but you don't want something that's so powerful that it's the only correct choice.
2: When it comes to Heroic Chords' combat system, it feels very tangible in that It's very easy for me to comprehend where we are in the fight, like um, just you can look at the measures and just easily pick up like, okay, we're struggling a bit or, oh, okay, we're like making some headway. Basically, like you can watch the sliders. And for me, it's just very satisfying to get this great overall picture. I I feel that each encounter is easy to understand where we are. Um, Good within it, if that makes sense. (laughs)
0: Yeah, no, it makes, I'm very glad to hear that because I think, um, well, there's different schools of thought on that. A lot of people believe that the GM should be opaque, like that there should be a GM screen between what the GM is doing and what the players are doing and that the GM's actions are meant to be straight up Wizard of Oz shit, just inscrutable behind a curtain mystery. And to people who like that kind of thing, not being able to see a monster stat blocks. I mean, I would show, I don't think I would show you guys monster stat blocks just because I like to surprise you with tags. But I'm really more of the school of thought that sometimes giving the players more information doesn't actually make the game easier, if anything. And we talked about this last time we did a Cat's Cradle the metagaming in the combat in Heroic Chord is itself an interesting side game. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a part of the encounter system, basically, is balancing what the players want to do as well, not just, uh, you know, what the characters
2: would do. How many times have we been like, oh, okay, well, if we let this go through, or if we block this, but then that leaves us open to this, and, like, (laughs) we have to, like, pause for a moment and be like, Kind yeah, of...
1: how bad is cat going to bully us?
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like... and
0: when you go full Wizard of Oz, it's a philosophy that is based on the idea that metagaming is bad, that pure tabletop role-playing needs to be based 100% on character information. And anything else is cheating and impure. And I don't really hold with that. There are a lot of games that do, and I wouldn't say that it's a lesser way of running a game. But for me, when the metagame is itself a puzzle that the players are solving while their characters are solving it, that's actually a really fun table dynamic to be part of. Yeah.
1: So I'm curious. I mean, looking at the, the, the system in place now, one, I think, obvious thing you could obscure is how many successes you would need to complete a goal. And I guess, did you ever play that way? Did you consider it as part of the encounter role set as it exists today?
0: I did, but that made it very, very difficult to communicate what the players needed to advance a goal when it was time for them to try. Sure, sure. So yeah, I did try to obscure that information, but then they'd be like, well, I try to destroy. I roll three successes. You have to take two more out of the pool. Well, now they know it's five.
1: Sorry, I don't mean that. I mean how many times they have to uh, oh. succeed, you know, to, to complete the goal.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, that I um, I considered, but I found it easier as a designer and easier if I'm going to hand it to other people, to GM, to just say it's always five. Okay. And Kathleen's been known to play with that lever, actually. But for me, it's always going to be five. That means that I can hand the game to another GM, and that's one less thing they have to worry about.
3: Unless they want to. Unless they want to. I
2: was just going to say, it's it, the system also feels very satisfying when you are playing a combat uh, as against the party, like when I was Persisope, and that also felt very satisfying to kind of watch the sliders and manage the combos and... Um, yeah. Okay.
0: That's actually, yeah, you've, you got to run a combat that I wrote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How was that experience? <laughs> like, you have mentioned that you had a lot of fun being Possessive but, like, what was the cognitive load like? Did you feel like you had to think a lot or pay attention a lot or do a lot of calculations?
2: Um, it was actually pretty straightforward in keeping track of the sliders and um, what kind of moves I can use and things like that, I felt it had a lot of flavor. Each combat is so unique in how it feels. And um, that is really cool to me. And it was fun to kind of play with the party's um, expectations as well. Because, uh, actually, it's, it's now that you mentioned about the, the, the ability to kind of, like, do that second level of analysis with the metagaming of the numbers. Looking back at it, I realized that it was fun to kind of toy with that a bit. Right? Similar to when I play as a, like, as a, on the player's side of, like, feeling satisfied when I can do something kind of unexpected. I felt that, too, running a combat that was written for me, that I could kind of do unexpected uh, things that could kind of keep the party on their toes. But it didn't feel um, like, oh, randomly, now all of a sudden this happens. It, it felt organic. Each, each combat has a freshness to it, too. So,
0: and You brought up something that's really great. Is that honestly, as a GM, I have fun running this system. <laughs> like, I have fun running combat in this game, which I can't say about other games that I've run.
2: I, actually, yeah. Like, I've only GMed very, very slightly, and I tend to, like, shy away from combat. But last time you GMed, we didn't have the new combat system yet.
0: Yeah. Like, it was satisfying. <laughs> Speaking of running the new system, though, Nick, you took a lot of liberties with the encounter design in your chapter of Velt Stories.
3: I did, and that's largely because the system is very open to simple tweaks going a very long way to uh, adding flavor. So just like saying, you know, it wasn't destroy, but it was like scare off or something like that would lower how aggressive the monster was that was chasing everybody. So depending on what people were doing, you could say, okay, well, if they take the time to scare it off, it'll be less aggressive or if they're being really nosy and not watching what they're doing it'll be more aggressive and cutting down on granularity it makes it easier and harder to tweak things but it makes it easier to tweak things on the fly you know obviously if a monster has like 500 hit points and the players are doing like 30 hit points a hit or something like that or between th- you know like the math adds up real fast so i like keeping the numbers low in the system and messing with the various like knobs because you know, numbers don't go up or down very much, but that works. It's, you know, it's like a Paper Mario.
0: Paper Mario has been a guiding star for me, for Kirsten can attest to me constantly referencing Paper Mario when we were designing in <laughs> college.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's it's one of your uh,
0: inspirations. It's, I'm open about it. But one question I had for you, Nick, is that you were talking about, like, having an aggression track for the monster. Did you actually have, like different moves it would use at different aggression levels? Or did you just kind of change the way you used the moves it had?
3: It didn't have that many moves. It had like maybe two, but it would use them way more often when it was more aggressive and it would show up more often, which was the other thing is if it was highly aggressive, it would be like basically, you know, at the end there, it was just straight up chasing you, you know, whereas otherwise it was kind of stalking you, hence, you know, its name, but Like, when its aggression got high, it was basically, now it is a fight. It is here. You have to deal with it. It is going to, you know, like, you can't kill it. You can only get, you know, scare it off for a little bit.
0: So, uh, for those of you who maybe didn't listen to Velt stories, first of all, it's worth a listen. Rude. Very. Uh, Second of all, it's definitely worth checking out. But what happened in Nick's arc was the actual encounter was a combination of uh, roles we were making to explore an abandoned robotics facility from before the last war. And folded up in these mechanics of exploration, there was also this omnipresent stalker. So we would advance a track to explore and then the aggression would go up The entire set piece. If I'm understanding Nick correctly, the entire set piece was one
3: encounter. Uh, Yes, correct. The entire dungeon was the encounter because, again, it's like, okay, well, I can turn this into get to the bottom of the dungeon and I can turn this into, you know, get out of the dungeon and I can turn this into, you know, scare away the stalker. And then the stalker is the, you know, it's the one that takes the moves.
0: And I actually cribbed that for the Herathmus Temple, which um, I actually don't know, listener, if you have heard the Herathmus Temple, but suffice it to say that I do crib this hybrid dungeon slash encounter model that Nick has gifted us with, blessed us with for my own nefarious purposes.
1: Well, and I'm, I'm I'm fascinated by this idea where, Nick, when you were coming up with this, was it to exercise the, the encounter system and like you, you built this idea around using the system or was the narrative idea there and you found that the system fit into it nicely?
3: This was definitely like I had a narrative for what this facility would be. And as it turns out, the system actually just basically clicked into place without me having to do almost anything to it it was just like oh you want to do that okay go, cool. cool and we were away I set it up the whole encounter in like 10 minutes it was real easy because the system was like oh what do you want to do okay yeah like file this serial number off change this name there you go you're done all right let's go
1: so in that case and I'm imagining the answer is going to be no was there anything that you felt like just flat out didn't work, that you still, you wanted, you know, some level of, I don't know, obfuscation that, that is there or, or some lever that you couldn't pull, um, to fit into the narrative you had where you had to tweak the narrative instead?
3: No, not really, because I also said, okay, I want all of the information on the table. Yeah. I played enough, like, other little video games and, you know, things like Slay the Spire and other stuff where the player is essentially given perfect information and honestly, I find games are more interesting when the players have perfect information. So I decided, you know what? I will just tell people, here's where you're at. Here's where you need to go. Here's what the stalker's doing. And it worked out really well. And I think that's just the system itself. You know, maybe it was on accident. Maybe I'm secretly, subtly picking up on Cat's game design. Or, you know, it could be the fact that I've known Cat for over a decade at this point. That I just kind of picked it up really naturally and it did what I wanted to. And I didn't try to make it do anything else. Like, I specifically said the stalker doesn't have hit points. It's invincible. You can't kill it.
0: One thing that was really interesting about that encounter, too, is the way having perfect information manifested in the characters. Because, like, Rick was interested in exploring. Lane was interested in exploring, but was very wary and ready to escape. Hazel was interested in the stalker. Hazel was the one who was on guard against the stalker, who was taking actions to frighten away the stalker. And so that encounter really, even though like we, the players had perfect information and that meant that we were free to have our characters behave in their own ways because we were metagaming a little bit. (laughs) If you haven't listened to Nick's chapter or any of Velt's stories, please do, because it's genuinely a really interesting arc. <laughs> also, I got to just be a goblin and not be the GM. Beautiful. Loved it.
2: It was it was a fun it was a fun arc. And like having the entire dungeon be an encounter, I felt kept the tension the whole time. It wasn't like this feeling like, okay, you're walking down the hallway, oh, fight music starts. Encounter. It was like, you have the, like, the spooky music going the whole time.
0: I cribbed that for the temple. And honestly, that's something I'm probably going to crib again in the future. I would be surprised if there wasn't a dungeon section in the bestiary when heroic chord comes out. (gasps) Oh, yes. Because I love this concept. (laughs) It's very beautiful to me.
2: It's, well, I I like when things are parsimonious. It makes me feel good. (laughs) It's beautiful when it's taken into one whole, overarching being.
0: Okay, Kirsten? Mm Mm-hmm? Parsimonious means unwilling to spend
1: money. Yeah. Does it? That's what she meant.
2: Oh. I thought (laughs) parsimonious. What other word am I thinking of? I don't know.
3: But do you want harmonious? Well, I didn't know what that word meant, so. Yeah, I was impressed. You can't really get that stuff past cat, though. They're too fast for it.
0: (laughs) Well, where are you looking for it? Okay, describe describe to me the concept you're trying to describe to me.
2: Um. Oh, okay. Here we go. In the scientific method, parsimony is a epistemological. Oh, you
0: were! It has a different
2: meaning for scientists, and you were a biology <laughs>
3: student. <laughs> that would make sense.
2: As a logical, it's Occam's razor. Blah blah blah. Oh, okay, so simple, possible theoretical explanation for existing data. Um,
1: so we're keeping all of this in, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Me correcting Kirsten and then finding out that it's just because I don't know enough about science <laughs> is completely <laughs> <laughs> appropriate given how much I dunk on Kirsten.
2: <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's interesting, though, because I didn't know, like, English, right? <laughs> I didn't know that it had, like, an alternate meaning. I, and so that's uh, the word parsimonious. It's not parsimonious.
0: <laughs> I can't believe you. <laughs> oh, I can't believe you. Okay.
3: Anyways, where were
0: we? Uh, Kirsten was talking about how much she likes how um all of the different aspects of the system kind of come together into a unified and easily understandable whole.
2: Thank you. Yes. <laughs> No problem. That, that I well that is uh, we can redub it so it sounds like exactly like that I said. that.
0: We can't. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> 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 but yes, that is that is I I love I love how unified everything becomes, even if it's kind of a series of multiple smaller encounters. You can make one dungeon on its whole a full unit, and I love that.
0: Oh yeah. A really good example of what you're talking about is the swarm. Mm -hmm. When I had the party fight the swarm, that was my first initial test of this combat mechanic. And I didn't make individual horrors. I didn't stat out a never ending wave of horrors. That would be bananas. I'm not doing it. I'm too lazy. But like swarm encounters are very easy with these mechanics, actually, just as one system Even though in fiction, you're going up against waves and waves of opponents.
2: And it feels better. Like, it just, to me, it just feels better to feel like I am going against a unit as opposed to a bunch of different, like, things that are, oh, these are 20 hit points, 100 things of 20 hit points or whatever, right? Like...
3: Yeah, it's much easier, especially in most tabletop systems, uh, or at least, you know, RPGs, obviously viewed into war games, this changes, but most systems are designed for one on one. So it's like, okay, well, here's 500 rats. It's like, well, you could stat out 500 rats, but you're not gonna like it.
0: You're not gonna have fun. No yeah. one's gonna have fun if you stat out five hundred rats,
3: <laughs> plus also at that point, if you stat out five hundred rats, the players are going to basically look at you and go, "Okay, so I guess your turn is gonna take an hour and a half,
1: right, right.
3: But if you just say, "Well, okay, rat swarm or in you know cat's case, horror swarm um it's it works a lot better, and I think that was also why I decided to make. Uh, to make the dungeon an encounter because it's like, well, it's a bunch of little things that assembles into, like, one larger big unit where I can have, you know, the different rooms that everybody discovered um, using the, I guess, the explore track. You know, like, those are breakpoints. Then we cut away and we have a little, like, essentially non-encounter, non-combat session where or segment where everybody would, you know, go through the rooms and you'd find out more about what was going on and all that stuff. But... Yeah, it was the easy ability of the system to compress a whole bunch of things into something really simple to run.
0: And that's um, when you're setting up an encounter, instead of thinking of an encounter as a hundred rats, stop thinking about a hundred rats. I know it's cute. I I know their little faces. Their little noses are twitching. I know it's great. But don't think about them. Stop it. Okay.
1: What should I think about Kat?
0: The rats are a metaphor for all of the different aspects of the scene. And this is something Kathleen's encounter design does amazingly is just like everything that's in the scene is a part of the encounter. For example, if I were to stat up a dungeon, maybe there's a horror wandering around the dungeon and it's got some moves Maybe there's a risk of a cave-in at a portion of the dungeon and there's some moves for that. But you can fold all that into one encounter instead of having to stat out all 100 rats. Stop thinking about them. They're a metaphor.
3: The rats are a move. (laughs) One last thing I just want that just popped into my head here that I think one of the big reasons why I really like this system is I... I was a little while ago in a Shadowrun game and I think my favorite session was where we had to basically turn the internet back on. And in Shadowrun, that means going to uh, the crazy world of, well, okay, it's called the Matrix in setting, but it's it's basically like the realities that live inside the computer. In our instance, it was something that was based off of the Mask of the Red Death because that's just what they do. They They act weird like that, but it was technically like it was an encounter. You know, we were in this weird, you know, fake real world to turn the internet back on and something was stalking us through it. And the problem is in Shadowrun, like it was really awkward and we almost didn't use the rules of the game at all for this encounter because most of the shadow run rules were about shooting people with crazy guns. And it was my favorite encounter and I really wish I could have run it in heroic chord because it would have been way better and it would have been way more mechanically satisfying.
0: Well, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. Um, I guess to kind of sum it up, to kind of give you our thesis statement is that encounters can be anything and having a versatile encounter system is something that will allow you to design encounters freely. And maybe fold in extra aspects of the scene into the encounter, and hopefully have fun with your players.
3: Hopefully that is the end goal after all.
0: So, listener, what kind of encounters have warmed the cockles of your little hearts? What kind of set piece battles have you engaged in in any old game, although if you've played Heroic Chord, you must tell me about it, that have... Really, kind of blown you away and been a satisfying and dramatic and hopefully strategic experience for you. You can let us know on Twitter at Peach Garden RPGs or using the email form on our website at peachgardengames.com. You can also track us down on the Heroic Discord. You can find that link on our Twitter bio or the Be Gay Roll Dice Network Discord, where you can also meet our very cool network buddies. They're great. You're going to love them. Speaking of people you are going to love,
1: Bill. I know some of those people.
0: You know some of those people. You play with some of those people every week.
1: Yeah, you can find uh, people that you love and also me at Tales from the Tabletop. That's tftt underscore presents on Twitter and tfttpresents.com.
0: Wonderful, beautiful, excellent. Listen, Thanks for sticking around. We think you're great. And we would be delighted if you would honor us with your presence again. I'm curtsying. Oh, wow. I have manners. (laughs) Don't test me.
2: Bye, listener. Bye, we love you. Bye.
3: everybody. See you next time.
2: be gay
0: roll dice
1: an lgbtqia actual play podcast network
0: hi listener this is kathleen i am here to read a little bit of copy from our network sibling the last tapestry something is wrong in the city of astoria heights and the only ones who can set it right are a would-be starlet a nun with strangely prophetic dreams and a mobster on a divine mission. They know that a rift will open up in the city, utterly destroying it. And they know this because they have lived it more than once. Fate is dead, and they're their replacements. The Last Tapestry is a DD d 5e podcast featuring an all-LGBTQ cast set in a homebrew world with a 1920s aesthetic. Find it on your favorite podcast app, or follow it on Twitter at The Last Tapestry to find out when new episodes drop.